I guess as human beings, we are always trying to evolve in some way, whether we think we are or not. And, you know, we we know, and I think you mentioned this at a lunch that we were at the other day, that we know that every seven years, our cells completely regenerate. We are a new person. Maybe it was someone else who said it. Actually, it was at at a yoga teacher training I was at the other day. And so we, we know that you know, even without us trying, we are continually learning, evolving, changing, shifting. And so as teachers, when people are soaking up the words that we choose to say in whatever environment that might be, whether that's as a mother, whether that's in a corporate office, as a teacher, um, whether that's as a yoga teacher, the, the words that we use the people around us are soaking that up, their ears are taking that in, the way that we walk or hold ourselves or look after ourselves, eyes are seeing that, ears are hearing that, um, you know, energy is sensing that. And so we are all a byproduct of every single person that we meet or are taught by. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. This week, a very beautiful soul is with us, and I'm sure you'll feel as calm as I do once you hear her beautiful wisdom her beautiful breath, and her beautiful words. I can honestly say to you, this week's podcast is one that will really remind you of what it means to be fully present and connected to yourself, but also something greater than us. The gorgeous Kat Harding is an incredible yoga teacher, but as she says, her pathway to yoga has never been linear, and the ways in which she's come to appreciate it has changed her life well beyond what she thought was possible from her late teens and into her early 20s. Becoming a mother, shifting in and out of a corporate career as a human resources business partner, and navigating the world the way she has, has made her acutely aware of the bombardment of the outer world and in its do's and don'ts versus the inner world of beauty and possibility. For the past 10 years, she has walked the pathway of student and teacher at the same time. She offers studio and private lessons, workshops, experiences, retreats, and so much wisdom across the full spectrum of the yogic pathway, which she talks about in this week's show as the eight limbs of yoga. Her aim is to create and share experiences that bring you home, home to you. Now, I know you are going to love the messages that she shares, not only as a busy woman, but as a teacher, a mum, a wife, and a beautiful friend. We were brought together through the gorgeous Lauren Verona, who sadly we lost not that long ago, but in her passing has brought women like this amazing soul into my sphere, my vortex, with even more volition. I am so proud to bring her to you, and I know you're going to love hearing all the magic that she has to share, and please make sure you reach out and follow her, uh, and all the notes will be available for you, all the links will be in the notes for you. She also says an incredible quote at the end of today's show, and I've taken the time to type that out and put it in the show notes for you. It is profound, and I've never heard it said before, and so I look forward to sharing with you, on behalf of Kat, the amazing wisdom that comes from within. I hope you enjoy this week's show. Please reach out. You know you can place your comments and feedback on my Instagram page, Kim Morrison 28 or you can go to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training. You can head on over to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast, or you can follow the beautiful Kat Harding at cathardingyoga.com. So please let me know what you think of this. If you have the desire in you to share it or give it a five-star rating, it just helps me to get beautiful wisdom and beautiful messages of love and light out there into the universe, especially in this crazy old world that we live in. I think shining the light of love, connection, and kindness is more important than ever. I hope you enjoy today's show and cannot wait to hear your comments and feedback. Take care, be kind. 
and I'll see you right here again next week on the Self Love Podcast. What an absolute delight to bring to you someone who captivates my heart and soul in a way that possibly very few people do. This beautiful soul's energy is very calming. It is delightful to be in her presence. And most importantly, she just allows you to bring out the best in yourself. I am delighted to welcome you to the Self Love Podcast, beautiful Kat Harding. Hello. It's such an honor to be chatting with you on here. What an intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a phenomenal soul. And we we got to meet through a very beautiful mutual friend who sadly we lost recently. And we may talk about that a little bit later. But just for the beautiful listener who may not know what your background is and how you came to being so involved in so many different realms, particularly possibly yoga. Could you give us a brief background as to where Kat is from? What led her down this beautiful spiritual path of not only yoga, but also self-realization? Uh, well, I, um, I guess growing up, I didn't really, I didn't really know, you know, what I was going to be when I grew up. And so, when I finished high school, my the only thing that I could think of doing was um, my business degree with a major in human resource management because I knew that my ability to connect with people um, was greater um, and perhaps more empathetic than other people. I, I felt like I could connect and tr- get the best out of people. So I did my degree. I worked for a little bit. I had some really great experiences in that corporate world and also found myself quite often really feeling stressed and anxious and um, not having energy and all of those things that kind of come with that experience, that that mental experience. And knew but knew that I was going to be moving overseas at some point because it was my always my intention to travel and see the world and work in other countries. And so I ended up leaving my job, um, moving to England, and it was supposed to be just a one, maybe two-year time frame of being there. But while I was over there, I, um, after many years of trying and dabbling in going to yoga because I'd heard it was good for me and it would make me feel better in body and mind and soul, um, found a teacher that I had the first moment of, ah, oh, this is what it could be. Um, and around that same time that I found that teacher, funnily enough, my mother, my mom actually um, did her yoga teacher training, which I didn't really see coming. I, had, I don't really know where that came from for her. And I had this moment where I was like, maybe this is something that I could do too. Um, So I started to slowly shift more into the practices of yoga, which definitely started with the physical practices um, and then decided while I was living in England to take the leap and do my training and really delve deeper into what yoga beyond just asana or the physical practice is all about. Um, And, you know, it's about 10 years this month since I completed my yoga training. So 10 years of teaching yoga, I've shifted away from that corporate world since having babies and really sunk into yoga um, in all of its different forms and practices. Such a beautiful journey, really. So many people who I've interviewed over many years in the corporate world find that there's a real harshness to that world, that there's a real demand and a level of anxiety, fear, worries, comparisonitis, Um, real pushing oneself seems to be a common theme in the corporate world. With your degree behind you, I'm just curious, do you miss it at all? Or are there elements of the corporate world that you think are good? Is is it all bad? Or is there Mm -hmm. something that you can say to us is good? Do you know what? I feel that um, I sometimes do feel that maybe the corporate world is not 100% done for me in this lifetime. But what I really came to find, because for the first 
must have been six or seven years of after having completed my yoga training, I worked full time and I taught yoga on the side of that. So I didn't simply switch and turn off that corporate world because one of the things that I really found that I could have an impact and in and bring my yoga experience or just, you know, not even yoga, my experience of being a human being in, in an environment where you get, you get put in with a bunch of people who you don't necessarily choose to be with, but somehow we have to find our way to connect and work together to, to create um, an end result or to work towards a goal that is the vision of that organization. So I always felt that there that I could bring in my humanness and some of that yoga training and the yoga philosophy in how, especially from a human resources perspective, how we can look at the whole human being and understand that even when things don't go right or we might be moving in different pathways, that that is a human being in front of you and they have their own pathway and their own journey, their own things happening outside of the workplace. And so we need to really look to them as an individual and how can you as an individual be best supported because that in turn brings out the best in the organisation as well. So um, genuinely I feel that there is a huge, huge gap in many organisations around their capacity to understand that they have human beings working for them who have their own needs and goals and visions um, and and trying to merge that with what the organization wants and one day if they if I find the right place maybe I will go back but it has to be an organization where there's a real want and a will from um, from those who own or run it to, to understand and to bring people along for that journey because that's probably the most important thing um, that I found was lacking in many organisations that I worked for. They didn't really seem to understand nor want to about the human beings that were there. It's a very big separation for so many people, which is why many leave their jobs. They do not feel valued or heard Mm. or seen. But most humans, and I'm making a very generalized statement here, either want to make a difference or want to be part of something that is making a difference. And when we include that human element, you can't help but connect people's hearts to a bigger vision or purpose. And Mm. that is why I think leadership is so important in this day and age, because it really does come from the top. And if our leaders, our bosses, our CEOs, our owners of business, our entrepreneurs can really feed that sole purpose of why they're doing what they do, it really does filtrate through. Is that your understanding, whether it's a small business or a large corporation, that we all do want to be part of something bigger than us or part of something that does truly make a difference? Absolutely. I mean, why else would we show up? You know, if if you're not part of that, if you... And this is this is the thing that I always found working in human resource management because often, you know, I would only become aware of what was going on in a team when things were getting pretty dire. And you look, you stand back because you have the opportunity to have that more bird's eye view of what's really going on here. Um, and people are not feeling valued. They're not feeling that they understand what the vision is. They're not feeling connected with the end goal um, and they're not feeling connected with the people around them. So they just stop coming to work as one example, as one way that it can show up in a workplace or they start to feel sick within themselves. So anxiety, stress, all of those kind of things. Um, Or they feel that they're putting in so much effort and really not getting a return and an energy exchange in that. Um, And it's important for leaders to see those things before they escalate to the point where people do become unwell because then you've got even more work to do to try to bring that back together and to support those people both in health physically and mentally but also then 
in the work that they do, um, they're going to need some extra support and help to be able to feel productive and effective and efficient and part of the team and the vision. Um, and I think that's why I really, like, I, I really did in some ways enjoy working in human resource management because watching people's behaviours, both from leaders and employees, and seeing that disconnect um, was always really interesting for me. And from a yogic perspective, I approached that from a place of curiosity. Well, well, how is this playing out? Why is this playing out? What could we do? What are all the questions and the ways that we could we could think about this? Um, but also it's so interesting to watch human behaviour um, when you know, the when they start to realise the discomfort in all of that and then whether they step up to the challenge or whether they shy away from it and how that then plays out too. It's so true. And I can imagine <laughs> from your perspective with your knowledge in HR management, watching that with an even more, uh, I guess, profound and in-depth awareness of what it really means you know, leadership is such an important conversation in this day and age. And you mentioned at the beginning about the profound impact of that teacher that had on you when mm. you were still working in the corporate field. I'm, I'm curious also to know from your perspective then, teachers are incredible. They can make or break people when we look at the school system or environments of learning, mm -hmm. teachers or even unknowing teachers, in other words, parents or uh, siblings or friends or family members, we're all teaching, leading and being the example of whatever our values speak to us. What do you think is the most profound thing you've ever understood around not only being a teacher, but having teachers around you? What's the importance and significance of teachers? I guess as human beings, we're, we are always trying to evolve in some way, whether we think we are or not. And, you know, we, we know, and I think you mentioned this at a lunch that we were at the other day, that we know that every seven years, our cells completely regenerate. We are a new person. Maybe it was someone else who said it. I'm, actually, it was, at, it was at a yoga teacher training I was at the other day. And so we, we know that you know, even without us trying, we are continually learning, evolving, changing, shifting. And so as teachers, when people are soaking up the words that we choose to say in whatever environment that might be, whether that's as a mother, whether that's in a corporate office, as a teacher, um, whether that's as a yoga teacher, the, the words that we use the people around us are soaking that up, their ears are taking that in, the way that we walk or hold ourselves or look after ourselves, eyes are seeing that, ears are hearing that, um, you know, energy is sensing that. And so we are all a byproduct of every single person that we meet or are taught by. In yoga, there's a term called um, vasanas and it's really talking about habits. And so we can, if we look at teachers or the way we are taught something and we do that same thing over and over again, we are creating a deeper vasana, a deeper groove of that habit in us. So I think it's really important to remember the impact that everyone can have on everyone in this lifetime. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty profound, right? And mm -hmm. I've noticed that even as a mother, <laughs> when mm -hmm. I've heard my children repeat things I've said, sometimes <laughs> I'm like, ooh, I should have been a bit more mindful of that or, you know, I could do yeah. better. But I think children are one of the greatest teachers of all. Um, you do, did mention you've got two little ones, or, you know, ba do. your beautiful babes. Could you tell us then, th let's thread that over into parenthood, being mm -hmm. a teacher, and yet it's a role you've never played with your children at the age they are now, at the age you are, parenthood is like, it's a massive learning curve. Every day is different. We're never the same people as you just mentioned. Yeah. How do you manage or do you use the truths, the principles of yoga as a parent or are the two interlinked for you? Definitely. It's all very interlinked. I mean, I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means. Um, and there's, so much to consider and I absolutely have many of those moments where the attitude that 
that I present is presented straight back at me. Um, And in those moments, it's interesting. I kind of do think to myself sometimes I could get really frustrated or angry or I can just laugh and see it as it is what it is and it's a reflection of the attitude that I present sometimes. And so I can't be upset about that because I'm the one who taught that, you know. Um, So, yeah, but in general, for me, I don't think I've ever practiced so much of the, I guess, philosophy or the morals and ethics that sit within yoga in in that more general term of yoga. Um, I have never practiced it so much as I have as a mother. Um, Patience, deep breaths, um, non-violence, not wanting to lash out even when I'm being lashed out at, um, you know, whether that's, yes, screaming or whatever it might be, having a calm, being able to find calm and stillness even in absolute chaos and mayhem, um, which is just, you know, part of bringing up children. Um, Yeah, that those are all ways that yoga very much comes through in the way in which I parent. And I think it came across in my corporate world as well a lot of the time that that stillness in the chaos and that practice of knowing that no matter what's going on outside of you or even, you know, in your mind, that there is a place of stillness and a trust in that, that's been so important for me. Such a beautiful thing and a great reminder. You know, I've always given the example, depending on your state, will be a reflection of what goes on in the home. And the example I often give is if you've had a really stressful day, you haven't done any self-care, you haven't really looked after yourself, you're exhausted, you haven't eaten well, maybe you've lived on muffins and coffee and you Mm -hmm. get home and the kids are fighting you know, you're going to scream down that corridor going, what the hell is going on? As opposed to (laughs) same situation. If you've taken the time, you've done some breath work, maybe written in your gratitude journal, you've been to the gym or for a swim or a walk, you've touched the hands of nature and that same situation is occurring. I can almost guarantee that a mother would walk or father would walk down that corridor going, hey, 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 what's going on? Let's talk about this. It, so it's never the environment. It's how we show up in that environment. Exactly. I want to ask you then from a yoga perspective, in all the years that I've done yoga and had the privilege and pleasure to be in a class, I've always been taught it's never what you're doing on the mat. It's what you do on the mat that shows up in the other 23 hours of your day. Could you explain that philosophy a little bit more about the effort and interest it takes to look after yourself in those moments and then how it plays out in the rest of our days? I think one of the really incredible things about yoga and it's not necessarily in the yogic world spoken of this way one of the things that yoga brings to the table especially if you come to say like a 60 minute um asana practice is there's obviously a physical element to it of of moving moving your body in some way that hopefully feels good for you on that day or sometimes it feels really hard but it's so worth it anyways there's a and there's always an element of breath and breathing and in the movement and the breath there's a huge capacity to regulate our nervous system and when we have a more regulated nervous system we know that we have a clearer mind when we have a clearer mind we are less disturbed by the outer world so when we come when we show up and we take that 60 minutes for ourselves we are regulating our nervous system so that we can step back out into the world and for the 23 hours that are left of that day, we're we're approaching it from a regulated nervous system. And I think that's probably the the easiest way to explain what yoga does. It yeah, it instead of, like you said, that reaction of like, you know, almost getting involved in that energy of fighting or whatever might be happening with with your children you're you're still able to from a calm and regulated nervous system be like hey what's going on down there this doesn't sound right um and and stay there amongst it all so yeah, yeah. even even in the 
the the, the pit of it all it can be yeah. so powerful. But also I noticed the times that I really practiced that and they gave me many opportunities to practice it. <laughs> um, I also found that's where the power of essential oils and breath came into it for me, yeah. where I would use the tools of aromatherapy and breath work to calm their nervous system and mine. So whether it was a candlelit bath, whether it was a walk out in nature, whether it was to ground and whether it was to create a laughing, you know, some sort of laughing moment, it really did give us the opportunity to change states. And I think that's probably the most beautiful thing of all is the power we really do have to change our state. Now, yoga is not a new therapy. It's an ancient modality, Mm. and it's something that's been around for thousands of years. Could you explain to us the history of yoga? Because my understanding was that it was was originally for men. Am I right? Yeah. Yep. It was originally for men, Um, and typically it would be for young men um, of a certain I never know whether to say caste or caste. Caste, I think it is. Um, and, yeah, it was it was actually a, a privilege to be able to be one of the chosen ones or to come from a family um, where you would be chosen to be, to practice yoga um, with the Maharaj or, um, yeah. So it, it was for, for men, boys and men. Um, and now, interestingly, the majority of people, in particularly in the Western world, who who practice yoga are women. Um, yeah. So, so the history of it, um, it it was brought to the West to Western countries from India, um, and around that time, it became it became really popular, and there was. And in particular, what became most popular was asana, which is that physical practice of postures that you would see. And there's many different lineages that have come from maybe a handful of teachers um, in India. So the yoga that we we mostly see and practice, and even the yoga that in um, the 200-hour teacher trainings is, I guess, the, the foundation of it is that physical practice and the morals and ethics. And then when you add to your yoga training um, and experiences, you start to delve a little bit deeper into some of the um, more subtle practices and experiences that the yoga give you, like moving towards meditation. Um, yeah. Well, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because one of my favorite poses at the end of the class <laughs> is Shavasana, <laughs> yeah. where we get to lie and feel the vibration of all of our muscles, the nervous system and everything, but you do it in a really calm, meditative state. Is yeah. there a purpose for that? And if so, could you explain to us the importance of rest? Yeah, so I guess if you... um if you looked at there's a there's one of the the main teachers I guess um, or sages of yoga who is who are the foundation of most yoga schools and practices kind of come from is the um, Patanjali so his he is Patanjali and Patanjali wrote I guess that there are eight parts to yoga the eight limbed pathway but it's not necessarily one comes before the other but interestingly the first two are morals and ethics the third one is asana so that's your physical practice and the fourth one is pranayama or breath work and it goes on through withdrawal of the senses concentration meditation and bliss or enlightenment so at the end of each yoga practice, the posture that is practiced is called shavasana. It's the, the closing, the end. It translates to corpse pose. And essentially we, we do it because it is the death of the asana practice. It is the end of any movement or stillness or that very specific a period of time that you have. But from there, if you looked at the pathway of yoga, you would head into breath work, and then meditative states. So its purpose is to really give us that chance to almost shed our skin completely and dive into the inner layers that we know exist within us, our nervous system, and even beyond that, um, the really subtle layers of cells that you can't see 
And in those places, there is stillness, there is emptiness, there is uh, the capacity to be completely free from outer disturbance, but only if you trust in that stillness and that you will find stillness in there. And I think sometimes we we don't trust that because life is so busy. We get caught up in that busyness that our mind just continues to work. But it is truly, like you said, it's the most, most impactful part of a yoga practice for sure if you can trust that there is stillness beneath those layers of the mind. Oh, this is so beautiful. And I guess the principles of yoga are really deeply spiritual uh, practices for life. Could we just go back to, we've talked about asanas, which are the poses and the postures. We've talked a little bit about the virtues of morality and ethics, but Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the pranayama, the working with our (laughs) breath. Now, this is something that a lot of, it's it's very vogue at the moment. Everyone's talking (laughs) breath work. (laughs) And, And let's couple that with ice baths um yes. but i'm i'm really interested from your perspective then pranayama the the power of our breath for someone who doesn't know much about yoga but also and maybe hasn't even tapped into the power of breath i mean we wouldn't be here without it there's some beautiful breath practices what is the significance of that being such a mindful and powerful part of these eight limbs i think and it's really interesting um I'm, I might be somewhat controversial with the the breathing um, from a yogic perspective. I kind of really, I really lean into and believe in yogic breath work, which can be quite different to some of the. It's it's very different to say like Wim Hof breath work, which um, absolutely has its place, and many people get such huge benefits from it. But pranayama, I guess, essentially in in yoga, what they talk about is there's obviously oxygen um, that we breathe in and carbon dioxide that we breathe out, and we know that. But prana is life force, and prana rides on the waves of oxygen that go into your body, and it rides back out again on the exhale within the carbon dioxide. So prana is not just breath. And this is what I really love about pranayama, or um, in it from a yogic perspective, is what is that what they're saying is that anyone can breathe. And I had this really great teacher who explained it as you could be in hospital on life support, and they're putting oxygen into your body, but there's no prana in it. So you're not actually alive. You're being kept alive, but you are not alive. So if we can learn how to harness the prana in our breath, then we're going to see huge shifts in our energy, in our nervous system, in our physical body, our muscles, the way we function, in our brain, um, in our intellect, in our capacity to learn. We're going to see huge, huge changes if we can learn to extend the prana within ourselves. Um, So I really love that. But one thing that I did have done a couple of times now, so I ran a yoga retreat recently and we were talking about stila and sukha or steadiness and ease and trying to find that, that balance between that, not only on retreat in our bodies, in our minds, but also in life. How do we find that? And so part of the retreat, we did a breath work an ice bath workshop and the person who I asked to run it I really admire because all of his breath work is um, yogic breath work it's all in through the nose and mostly out through the nose some of it is in through the nose out through the mouth which is a cooling breath in pranayama yogic terms Um, and I really see the function of breathing happens through the nose um, down to the organs of respiration so I got him to do that specifically because the way that he teaches doing the ice bath is around controlling your nervous system. If you can use your breath as a tool to help calm your nervous system, then you're going to calm your mind as well. And so the purpose of doing the ice bath is to use a breath work, um, a breath work, a type of breath work, which is our one to two ratio breath. You've probably tried it before Kim, where you breathe in for say three and out for six? 
Yes, and yes. certainly you want to be in control of your breath when sitting in an ice bath, <laughs> that's for sure. Yes. So he yeah. essentially says you've got three to six breaths to bring to bring your nervous system out under control or you're getting out of the ice bath. So it's about 30 to 60 seconds. And so you get in the ice bath and you you practice in for three, out for six, in for three, out for six. And that breath work outside of an ice, an ice bath is well known for calming the nervous system, for dropping you deep into your parasympathetic. And I have done this quite a few times now within three breaths of very specific in, two, three, out, two, three, four, five, six, my nervous system is under control and all of my blood rushes to my skin and I'm warm in an ice bath, which is wild. But it just goes to show how incredible breathing pranayama like that is. So managing your prana in your breath whilst being in an ice bath, it it nourishes your nervous system. It's almost like prana is like a life force, as you say, an energy, a chi, a a real sense of there's a vibrational intellect with it. There's something way beyond what we can actually scientifically even prove. I'm, I'm really fascinated with yoga in the sense that for many of us, when we get to a class, um, the monkey brain can set in. Yeah. Got to pick up this from the supermarket. Must remember to drop off Johnny. Got to pick up that for Sally. Got to the 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 thoughts, the millions. But one thing I love about the yoga teachers that I've had the privilege of being in class with have just say, said, "Let it come and go." Is that the same? I know that breath work is, you know, when we can control it, but it's almost like the thoughts we don't want to can control. Is it, what what is your thoughts around that monkey brain for so many people? I think it's a very real thing. And I think if you look at the way in which we live, um, which is inevitable unless you want to live, like I think most teachers, yoga teachers will say, unless you live in a monastery up in the mountains, like you're going to be a part of the busyness of the world. And with the busyness of the outer world comes with a busyness of the mind. You can't avoid it. But what we want to learn to do is to use it appropriately. Use your busy mind when it's time to get your to-do list done. Find a still mind to counterbalance that because we need to have times of rest and digest. Otherwise, we never digest. We never digest our days. We don't digest our food. Uh, We don't even breathe properly to be able to get adequate oxygen all the way to the base of our lungs. So I think it's really important to remember that you can be busy and have a monkey mind and you will need to use your sympathetic nervous system, but you've also got to find time to use your parasympathetic nervous system because that is where we heal and look after ourselves. Yeah, the one thing that was taught too in order to help, and this was something that was you know, given to me as part of learning transcendental meditation, was the power of having a mantra. Is that a way of helping with the monkey mind and bringing that stillness? What is your thoughts on the powers behind mantras? Oh, mantras can be incredible because you you have a point of focus. And I think this is where, so the, um, the what number is it? The sixth step or the sixth part in the yogic, the eight-limbed pathway to yoga is concentration. So, yeah, a mantra. Um, having a word or two words, something really simple. Even um, you can use, like that's why people have mala beads, kind of like rosary beads. You know, you you say your mantra with each bead, 108 beads the whole way around, and you have that physical touch, I guess, if you're more tangible, um, if you'd like to have a bit more of a tangible thing to go by, you've got each bead one by one to work your way around. Um, and you'd say a mantra with that. The other like ways that you can concentrate is candle gazing or, you know, even watching a particular leaf on a tree. Just choose one. Go stand outside, watch it, see it float, stay with it for a little while. Um, and it does, I feel like sometimes it would be amazing to carve out 40 minutes every day to do this, but as a mom, especially, or even when I was working full-time, I just didn't feel that I had the capacity to dedicate that much time. But if you did it in micro moments, 
two, three minutes here and there or twice a day, oh, that's right, I'm not breathing into the base of my lungs. Let's just take take a deep sigh um, a couple of times a day. You've then got all these little snippets and all these things that you're integrating into your day to help calm the monkey mind when it needs calming um, and to, to find that balance. I think it's a really powerful thing to say because for many of us, it's it's knowing the importance of stilling the mind, but not having tools or techniques to do it. So I'm absolutely loving the reason for mala beads, the candle gazing, the nature watching, mm-hmm. all of these things. And of course, implementing our breath work to go with it. Just I was taught years ago, just taking three long, deep breaths and saying something that you're grateful for is a beautiful, cheap, non-invasive way to mm-hmm. stimulate like the parasympathetic nervous system. Is gratitude a part of your practicing? Yes, definitely. Um, and it's actually funny because one of the things, and I don't say it every class, but it's always, especially when I need it, but also when I feel that others need to hear it. I often finish teaching a yoga class and ask everyone to take a moment, to think of one thing about themselves that they are grateful for. And I remind them, to come back to that place, that thought, that thing that they are grateful about themselves, um, to come back to it as often as they can throughout their days and to remember it. Um, it's because it it has the power to bring us into a present moment and to still the mind and also to give us courage um, in order to face whatever might be rising at that time. When you think about children, now I want to step in with that. Mm-hmm. It's all very good and well to teach adults this, but children yeah. actually have a very powerful relationship with all of these things. Mm. Is it important to you to teach these principles and philosophies to your children? Do you ever use the the principles of yoga as a form of teaching or as some sort of instrument for knowledge for your children? And if so, how do you do that, especially if they're having a little meltdown? <laughs> um. Definitely. I I guess I don't explain it the same way as what I do for adults. Um, but often when we're in the heat of like a quite an explosive emotion, um, out, yeah, explosion of emotion, I tend to find that one of the things that works best is not for me to add to the noise. So not trying to talk over not trying to console with my words, for example, but instead just being a presence that's feeling, that's grounded and calm and a safe place for them to to be with. So a lot of the time I will simply sit and if they're happy for me to hold them, I'll hold them, but I won't add much more than that because they're already overwhelmed and their nervous system is obviously moving a lot through for whatever reason. And so I see, I create a safe, calm, grounded presence that they can then find their way back to. And I guess that energy or them seeing me holds that space, reminds them that they too can be that. Once they've got out what they need to get out, they too can come back to that grounded um, more playful, lighthearted self that that is their true self. Um, so that's one thing that I do. The, my children see me sighing all day. <laughs> Something happens. It's always just like, oh, like, and I they do it back to me now all the time. <laughs> something when they're not happy with something or they don't think that I'm listening to them, they'll do a big sigh and then off they go again. <laughs> um, so that's another thing. And I think a lot of what I do is just try to demonstrate those things consciously, unconsciously. Some of them are unconscious because they're habits like the sighing now. It's a habit of mine to sigh like that, but it feels good. Um, and others I'm more consciously choosing to to set the tone so that they can see how it would be to be regulated or grounded um, so that they know that they can do the same. Oh, it's so powerful. And it's that whole thing, isn't it? Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> It's that whole thing where parents forget that they are their greatest role model and 
children do not listen to the words. They watch your actions. Yeah. They, they are very conscious of what you are in your word. In other words, it is better to be a beautiful role model than some sort of supermodel. It is better to be the example, not the evangelist. And Absolutely. I think for many of us as humans, as parents, I guess we're pushed to the brink. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're working hard. And then to have children not conforming or doing what we think they could or should be doing, <laughs> it just adds to the mosh pit of stress and pressure. Yes, but it, it really comes back to self-regulation. There is no one except yourself to help master this. What are some of the scriptures of yoga that have really stood out for you in, in your studies and in your areas of practice? Uh, I've, you've talked a lot about pranayama and we also can understand the asanas and things like that. But what about the principles? of yoga has anything ever stood out for you and have you ever been able to apply it maybe in a very stressful or low point in your life I'm sure that I've used lots of different things but I feel that the thing that I've always resonated with the most is I guess the thought in yoga that whilst I might might be living this human experience I am not those exact experiences. That is not who I am in my essence. Um, and it's allowed me to kind of be simultaneously involved in life, but also with a, I guess, a perspective, a broader perspective of not being attached to those, to those individual experiences because things don't always go to plan. Um, and that and and being able to be okay with that is a really hard hard thing being able to be in those moments where things don't go to plan um but also have some some boundaries on that to realize to know that you if you get stuck into those moments you then don't move past them um yoga's given me a lot of tools like um, I guess like if you're really taking breaths, but also the perspective um, from some of the morals, the yamas and niyamas to see it for what it is and to not become attached to it. Um, yeah, that's probably the the biggest thing. And, you know, I even think, um, so our, our friend Lauren, when she passed away, um, I remember I remember years ago, and I shared this at the time on my social media, uh, years ago I was reading this book and it had this really beautiful description about grief and love. Um, and at the time I read it and I thought to my, I know, I thought to myself, I don't need this right now, but I'm going to need it one day. And when Lauren passed away, I within a couple of hours of hearing the news was able to kind of pull myself back a bit. And I thought, I, re I remembered the book and I was like, I need to find that book because there's something in there that I need to know. And, you know, all these experiences, you know, you can read things or do things, but sometimes you need to also have the foresight um, and the, the power over your own mind to be able to control where you go and to step back and be like, there's something, there's a bigger lesson in this. There's something else that I needed to know. Now's the time for me to let that sink in. Um, and it's devastating when you lose someone so close to you in such tragic circumstances, but she would have never, ever, ever wanted us to sit in that place of grief forever. She would have wanted us to keep loving her in whatever way we could, um, but not only in grief. So I don't know. I think yoga has given me a lot of perspective that life and death happens at the end of each class. There is a death. It is, it is Shavasana. It's the end of that practice. The practice will never be the same again, ever no matter how many times you try to replicate it. And that's the same in life. That moment will never, ever be the same again. And it'll only be the same if you specifically are trying to replicate it. And it's not going to feel the same anyway. So you're just, you know, essentially beating your head against a brick wall. You can't replicate moment to moment. You have to keep your eyes up and your heart open. You have to keep moving forward no matter what life throws at you. 
Oh, this is so powerful because that time for both of us, for all of us, that knew Lauren. And by the way, beautiful listener, if you want to hear a beautiful, amazing conversation, the Self-Love Podcast Show 55 is where I got to interview that amazing soul. But losing her at the birth of her gorgeous little girl, Lucinda, and how it's brought us all together even more. Isn't it interesting that sometimes in people's death, there is more connection than there even is, or there's a a sense of it'll last forever when we're alive. What have you noticed since her passing has become very highlighted for you? Has there been some good and maybe even not so good moments? What's been the biggest insights for you since we lost her physical form? I think it's probably just what you say in, in, you think sometimes that thing like that grief or death, the death of someone is, you know, essentially our, we would associate it with being that is, that has ended and we'll no longer have a connection um, with that person. And if you're open to it, you'll realize that in that death, there is greater connection there is greater connection with everything that could come after life. There's greater connection with every person who was brought together by that person in life. Um, and you, yeah, there's no disconnection at all if you don't sit in grief for too long. If you allow it to be what it is and to see it for what it is, there's so much connection that you can find with your heart, with their heart, with that person, with their friends and family um, that you wouldn't have had while they were alive, alive potentially. So, yeah, I really, that's probably been the biggest lesson for me is remembering that grief and death aren't singular. We are all connected in some way, even through that. It's just so beautiful. And I know as we all crawled our way through the pain of the mm-hmm. loss of her, let alone the impact on her three girls and her amazing husband, who had the privilege to marry the two of them just mm-hmm. three months before she passed, <laughs> just even the role that I got to play in their lives of the marriage and then the celebration of her life boy, were they ever the dichotomies of extreme happiness to extreme sadness. But one thing I learned when in India was that there is no dark, uh, sorry, there is no light without dark. There is no highs without lows. It almost taught within a three-month period the absolute extreme of the human conditioning around those emotions, but Mm. also really taught us to revel in it, to explore it, to be curious with it, but not become it, as you say. Yes. And I think one of the things that I've learned the most through women like yourself and the gorgeous Emily that we had on the show a few weeks ago and our gorgeous Lauren is that it's important to acknowledge our emotions, but it's more important not to become them. How would you sit with that? How would you teach that to people either in a class, your children, or how else would you word that? I mean, on a very physical level, there's some really cool research around um, traumatic response and shaking. So our bodies have the capacity to shake um, and often in stressful situations um our body's physical response is to shake so on a very physical level sometimes i specifically teach classes where i talk about um our our bodies what our bodies are meant to do and how we try to suppress that and in doing so it gets stuck in us and so let's find ways for our bodies to shake in some way so that we can keep moving that through us and not let it become us Um, so that's one way I talk about it in the class but also we do lots of navasanas or boat pose or um, postures that kind of make your legs shake a lot or your abdominals shake or your arms shake so um, that's always a challenging but somewhat maybe I don't know I'd call it a fun practice but I guess I'm not the student in that scenario so maybe it's not so fun for them Um, So that's one way. But in general, I feel that sometimes the best, sometimes it's those moments of introduction to a yoga class or when you're 
chatting with friends or you're seeing your children shaking and crying, that again, just holding that space for them to let it out so that they do not become stuck in that emotion. And if we quell it and we stop it, then it is going to become stuck in us in some way. And we're going to just, we'll have to simply work harder to undo that. Um, I used to also say when I was working in HR, when people would apologize for crying, I'd always remind them, you don't need to apologize for it. We have these emotions because we're supposed to experience them. Um, so let yourself experience them and and just know that it'll rise and at some point it'll come to an end and maybe that's the better time for us to work through where to from here. Um, so I think it's really important in all scenarios that we remember that if we've got an emotional release, we just need to let it out. I agree. And I think the more wise and the more time we spend learning about ourselves, that becomes an even greater avenue of self-awareness, which in turn becomes self-love. You know, yoga is an act of self-love. It is a beautiful practice. And all the things that you teach are, in my humble opinion, acts of self-love. What's Kat's definition of self-love? Um. Do you know what? I was presenting at a teacher training, a yoga teacher training on the weekend, and we were talking about ethics and yoga. And in particular, I was talking a little bit about um, exchange of energy between students and teachers and that mutual exchange of really beautiful energy. It can be such an incredible um, exchange. And one of the things that I wrote down that I wanted to share with them was um, – God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And for me, that's kind of my definition of self-love and um, self-care is, I guess, that point of the wisdom to know the difference between what I can change and what I can't change. And that's where that's what I really love on myself because otherwise, if I can't change something I become frustrated and all of that emotion rises where it's it's potentially unnecessary or if I want someone if I'm sad that someone passed uh, passed away in my life like Lauren if I sat in that spot I can't change that I need to have the wisdom to know the difference between be like being sad that something has happened or frustrated, but also knowing that maybe in that scenario, I can't change anything and sitting in that, that midpoint. It's a very hard place to be, (laughs) but one that actually I personally have found when I sit in that space of stillness and allow the feelings, be it waves of tears or deep shaking and uncontrollable crying in those moments, we never stay in that place forever. And I'll always say in my workshops to those of you in a really tough, challenging space right now, just remember this too shall pass. Mm. And then I look around the room and I go, and for those of you in a really good place right now, I also have some advice for you. And that is this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Life is full of dichotomies (laughs) and change. And you alluded to that in our very first part of opening this In the evolution of change and us constantly evolving and recreating ourselves daily and moment by moment and every seven years, what would be the legacy, the imprint, the footprint that you would love to leave on this planet as a part of your beliefs and philosophies for a greater world? I feel at this point in my life, the greatest legacy that I can leave is is by modeling as often as I can that sense of groundedness and also openness to all emotions and experiences, but without being pulled into it um, and without being pulled off my center into it. So I would love to be known as that person who is who takes a deep sigh when there's trouble of some sort um, or when there's a challenge, but who and who lets out that whatever needs to be lets out, but also has the ability 
to stand tall and calm and centered amongst all of that. That is what the, what the legacy that I would like to leave behind, whether that's just for my children um, or maybe for my friends or people who know me or maybe people who see me um, when I'm teaching or sharing yoga or hosting a retreat. I'd love for them to to see that that part of me and to know that that is my legacy that I leave behind. Well, it's a legacy that you live in its fullness right here and right now. And that's why I so love being in your space and your company. We had the privilege of speaking at beautiful Emily's Long Soulful Lunch not long ago. And I think we all brought out the best in each other to really connect Connection is a huge part of your world and your vocabulary. Connection to self, to planet, to source, to one another, to humanity. In your Mm -hmm. final statements to this beautiful group, (laughs) um, perhaps you could share with us not only how we could connect with you, be it on your socials, so maybe you could start off by giving us those, but your final message um, that maybe could include the power of connection, beautiful cat. Um, so you can find me on Instagram, um, as yoga kiss and it's all one word, or you can connect with me, um, and sign up to my newsletter at www.cathardingyoga.com. Um, and the final words I guess I wanted to leave was for some reason for weeks now, our on the side um, at my house, I had this card arrived from a beautiful Sunshine Coast um, label or brand, and it's actually the dress that I wore to that event. Um, and I didn't realize, didn't know why, because I'd never really read it properly until you reached out to me about the podcast, Kim. Um, so I wore that beautiful dress from the Sunshine Coast um label and this card came with the dress and it has as I've found the most beautiful um, words on it that I would really love to share with everyone it's actually um, by an artist called barefoot and thankful and it's called heart art between the rain and the rainbows so here it is remember we can grace our days with sunrises and flowers with moonlight and magic. Between our shadows and colours of emotion, when it's noisy in, we can go out. We can allow our socks to slowly soak the dew. We can smell the blossoms in the air and watch the visiting bees and rainbow lorikeets. Maybe if we sit long enough, we can see the broad beans grow and the orange flowers bloom. If it still feels noisy, we can breathe. So deep our lung branches feel longer too. We can release tension from our jaw behind our eyes and gaze up to the glittering sky, drenched in that blinding, glorious sunlight we know is keeping us alive. Remember, we can create our own calm, our own silent world within where even in the midst of chaos, troubling thinking and turbulent seas, we can feel ourselves floating with our wild waters. Remembering in these moments, we can trust, we can surrender. We can feel the gentle pulling peace of our unfurling existence. Feel the peace of our seasons, our cycles, our rhythms and reasons. And when we are willing, we can intend and move again, pouring self-compassion into our veins, gracefully moving, knowing life can become a chosen moment-to-moment romance, a dance between the rain and the rainbows. That was just so beautiful. (laughs) And I just, I'm feeling those words bathing me. (laughs) I know. It's just so powerful. It is. What did you feel the first time you read that? And that to come with a dress? Like what a beautiful end. Can you just close again by telling us what that meant to you to receive that beautiful card? I, 
it just felt, it felt like the most beautiful reminder of the contrast and the yin and the yang and all of the beauty, even in the chaos of life. And it was something that, you know, one of those moments again, like I left this out because I knew I needed, I needed this. I needed to come back to this. I needed to remember. I needed to remember the rain and the rainbows and that those two things come together. It's just such a beautiful, it almost, I can feel myself sighing. (laughs) (laughs) It is, yeah. It's like a beautiful way to recognize that none of us are alone. If we look at others and think their life is perfect, remind ourselves also that they too have gone through challenge and transformation and change and that we too will go through challenge, transformation and change, that nothing stays stagnant, that everything is a moving force. And I guess the thing I've taken from you today is to participate in that force, not become a victim to it, but give ourselves the time, space, love and compassion to be a part of that energetic presence. I just feel so humbled to be around you, beautiful cat. And it is just such a treat to share with you um, this beautiful, the listener of this show. But thank you for reminding us all of the power of stillness, of honoring and knowing oneself. And thank you wholeheartedly for going on this journey and then being the teacher for so many of us. I cannot begin to tell you how much I love you and appreciate you and how much I want to thank you for being on the Self-Love Podcast. Oh, thank you. It is such an honour to be able to chat with you like this. Um, Yeah, thank you, and I love you, and I am so grateful for Lauren bringing us together years ago and and again more recently. It's so just makes my heart burst. I'm so, so thankful to have you in my life, Kim. (laughs) Same, my sweetheart, same. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.